0: Welcome to Telltales,
1: an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.
0: Oil and gas, I have a very short report, which is interesting in the context of other Wednesdays for the last year or so. Oil seems to have stabilized Um, WTI and kind of the, the, you know, $60 range, $55 to $60 range. Um, there's no question that, uh, that you have some kind of a partial lockdown going on in many places in Asia, China, other places. And there's no question that that's having an impact on oil demand. Um, and, uh, so I think the, I think OPEC was meeting today. I think they meet um, monthly to authorize increasing their production of OPEC plus OPEC plus Russia by 400,000 barrels a day per month. Uh, and if they continue that to I don't know December, January, or something, they'll they'll be back to the pre-pandemic uh, levels. Uh, I know the Kuwaiti minister I saw in one of the Platts Newsletters was advocating not increasing in uh, September um, because of the attack of the virus. But I think the oil market is pretty well balanced. Natural gas, something interesting is happening, uh, or not happening. I mean, it's happening, and I don't know whether you can count on it. But natural gas prices have averaged... I don't know, 250, 260 on an annual basis. Uh if you go all the way back to before the Marcellus, uh natural gas average price would be about ten percent of the price of oil. So if oil was averaging sixty, it'd be six dollars. But when the Marcellus came on, which became a third of our production, our production in this country is ninety bees a day. And Marcellus and Utica to God got to thirty two or thirty three. Uh, from a standing start, I mean, uh, so it just changed the dynamics completely. So rather than being 10% of the price of crude, uh, even today with very, greatly improved natural gas prices, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, dollars and, you know, it's like 6% or 7%. There seems to be a realization that natural gas production of around ninety ps a day is actually a little more likely to go down than up. Why is that happening? Well the Marsalis Utica seems to have matured and and you can track these statistics, they're available. I've spotted Fentech. Fentech specialized in 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 looking at pipeline flows and coming up with pretty good statistics. The associated gas uh, from the Permian is also uh, on the flattish side. So Marcells can be flatter up a little, and Associated Gas can be flatter up a little. Everywhere else goes down, with the possible exception of the Hainesville. So uh, we may have a somewhat declining. In the meantime, the increments for uh, power demand kind of offset by the out- onset of renewables. So Power demand for gas would be going up, but renewables cuts in. Also, as gas gets up in the threes, you you start to burn more coal, um, and because uh, it's the ISOs that decide what's going to run the independent system operators, uh, you bid you bid your power in every day, and that's, a, that's a way the that's the way deregulation worked in the utility business. LNG, uh, which went from four dollars in July of 2020 to $30 spot price in in, uh, in January of 2021, had gotten back down to a 6 or $7 range by April, suddenly took off. And it's sitting now at $17. So we're in, in North Asia. And uh, so LNG demand is very, very, very strong. Has gas repriced? In other words, could we anticipate the gas would be 350 on an annual basis, rather than 250 or 260. The answer is the signs are that it has. Just we've had these kind of false storms before, so can we count on this? You know, I don't. I don't know. Uh, when you look at natural gas stocks, you're pretty well stuck with the Marcellus companies. I mean. Bind, which Sainsville came public, has now been merged into Chesapeake, or that's an announced merger. Our own Indigo, which we might have come public, we have merged into Southwestern. Um, so there really isn't a natural gas stock that I can think of. Well, there's one or two I can think of, but right, you got to pick up your mind what you think about Antero, Southwestern, EQT. Abbott is merging with Simrex, so it'll be not just Appalachia. Um, and, uh, so those are the companies you have to look at. Uh, if gas is repriced and it's going to be 350 these things are a bit on the cheap side, but I don't know that you can count on that. In the meantime, other than Cabot and Simrax together and Tarot Southwestern, EQT, they need the management, of the board needs to have the confidence that they can increase their production spending only two-thirds their cash flow. That confidence you see in the EOG uh, finances, in uh, Pioneers finances, in uh, Diamondbacks finances, and these Appalachian companies have to catch on. Otherwise, I think they will continue to be effectively orphans. Um, in terms of capital markets issues, uh, the uh, – the slowdown with the virus, well, let me just stick to, the, to the virus for a second. There's no question now there are breakthrough infections. Uh, I regularly interact with 30, 40 people in Texas or, I mean, run our companies most of our, you know, more than half our companies are headquartered in Texas. At least a third of the people uh, we interact with, uh, have had, have gotten, um, uh, 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 sick. Uh, uh, sometimes just a couple of days, sometimes five days. One or two cases, adults in hospitals. All these people were double vaccinated. So I don't know what it is about Texas, but uh, what the the virologists call breakthrough infections, it, it's definitely happening in Texas. Uh, the uh, there's a new study out from Israel which you know, has really the best records and got to 80% tax saying the third shot is really important. Uh, all of this will have an, certainly has an impact on all the uh, Will have an impact on, you know, worldwide economics. Uh, it seems to me it's manageable. I don't think we're going to have a repeat of, you know, March and April 2000. but certainly something to keep an eye on. In terms of impact on on the central banks, uh, I do think there's increasing uh, consensus. And so we're not just talking the Fed. We're talking the, uh, the European Central Bank, the Japanese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, uh, just central banks across in, in, in uh, you know all the central banks together, that they've overdone it on the liquidity, that they monetized too much of the debt, uh, that, um, that they are somewhere between two and three months and six months behind in, in, in providing this much liquidity. And it's created dislocations. Uh, uh, you know, the 10-year U.S. Treasury at 130 is a dislocation, but, else the Euro bond at, you know, 10-year bond, German bond at, you know, 20 basis points or something, that's a dislocation. These things have to be mended. Uh, and so the, the Fed and other central banks will will damp down their quantitative easing, you know, in effect monetizing the, the country's uh, overspending by acquiring debt, that that, that will be reduced. Uh, whether or not the Jay Powell in his speech uh, for the Jackson Hole virtual speech, because they couldn't go out there because of Delta variant, but uh, the Fed uh, uh, said that uh, this doesn't mean there'll be any action on interest rates. In other words, the Fed funds rate, fair and good. But I think if you look at what the Fed governors say, they all feel that you know we're at least we should have been should have been reducing the 120 billion a month that the Fed buys. We should have started reducing that last March or April. That they're really behind the curve and should get after it. So I think we can anticipate that happening. Hard to say, but I I think that's built in the stock market valuations. Um are stock market valuations much higher than they would be if you didn't have negative interest rates, you'd have to think so. Is there concern about inflation? Absolutely. Uh if you look at articles on inflation, you know they 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 point to the price of gold and whatnot. Nothing touches a company that grows its cash flow without you know, without overspending their capex, and has increasing dividends. If you look at any of those charts, they way outperform gold, and you'd expect them to outperform substitutes for gold. Principle one being Bitcoin. Uh, so, what we have to do in these Wednesday calls, what Mike has to do, looking after his partnership, what I have to do, looking after not just your account investments, but our energy investments is find those companies that will outrun inflation because they, they don't need to sell equity. They don't need to run up their debt. Uh, what are those, com- those companies are, you know, like our large tech companies, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebooks, the uh, uh, the, the Amazons. Um, we have, because it's mostly a lot of work Mike's done, I have three in front of me now that I definitely, over the long weekend, will be spending time on. Uh, one is Snowflake. Uh, one is Regeneron, which is a new name that uh, uh, one of our one of the people are close to investing in sailing was you know, one of the early, uh, early employees at uh, Richard Bonanno at, at Regeneron. And uh, the other is Salesforce. I've been resistant on Salesforce. I just think I'm wrong. Mike has been very strong on it. And since we have a long weekend coming up, so they, those are three companies. They, I'm, I'm not saying the valuations are right. I'm not saying that, you know, finding more time, there may be a flaw. But coming up the long weekend, uh, Mike has two or three others that are worth uh, spending time on. So i turn over the rest of the half hour to Mike. Off you go, Mike. <laughs> Great. Thanks, hein.
1: So So I'm going to continue down the path that we started a few weeks ago of uh, just – we're we're looking at all the IPOs from the last year and trying to dig through the ones that we think are most interesting um with the purpose of trying to find the ones that we think will do an effective job of compounding capital over the long term um we gave some examples of ones that have been super successful everything from Nvidia to Fastenal, um even uh, Altria uh, among others so spanning uh, across the spectrum obviously my focus is a little bit more um a little more technology bent, but, uh, we'll go, we'll go beyond those in future weeks. But for this week, we're going to talk about a topic that I'm I'm fairly well versed in mainly because I've spent some time in my professional career prior to when I began running, uh, this fund full time, um, developing software applications, utilizing artificial intelligence technologies. So, Last week, we didn't have time to cover Palantir, so we'll cover Palantir today, but we'll also cover a company called C3 AI, which is also an enterprise um, artificial intelligence company. So, I'm going to start by digging into Palantir, I'll then kind of give an overview of the company, um, then I'll do an overview of C3 and uh and then we'll kind of compare their relative valuation metrics and for those of you that got my weekly email I did a high level software as a service valuation primer um that I think is helpful when you start to think about some of these companies because uh, valuing value and growth is very different than valuing cash flow um ultimately that growth should turn into cash flow and companies like Salesforce have been a good example of of uh, making that transition. Uh, companies like Palantir and C3 are earlier in their stage where they're still spending... Uh, well, well, we'll get into the details later, but let me start with Palantir. So, um, Palantir is founded by Peter Thiel and a handful of other guys. Uh, and Peter Thiel is relevant because we spoke about him a few weeks ago um, as being infamous for, or maybe famous, depending on your perspective, uh, for amassing north of $5 billion in a Roth IRA. Um, much of the way he did that is because his uh founder stock uh from when he founded palantir was held inside of an ira uh which is a fantastic ingenious tax uh maneuver that he successfully pulled off um, so Palantir was started with an initial focus on supporting the intelligence community. Um, they've got two key enterprise, uh, software platforms, uh, Palantir Gotham, which is the government focused one and Palantir Foundry, which is, uh, essentially your non, uh, non top secret type, type work. Um, they Gotham was a counterintelligence tool, essentially enabling advanced data analytics and AI across disparate data sets. So, put yourself in the shoes of the federal government or an intelligence agency, for example, trying to track terrorists. Um, they would look at everything from um, flight manifests to databases with information on known known bad guys, and they would. Essentially, pull all of that data into a physical piece of hardware with their advanced uh, software running on it, it to enable the making these data relationships. Um, the company's grown a lot since then, and they've expanded out into multiple different verticals. Um, they've become prominent in in finance. Um, some of the large hedge funds and um, and major bulge back bracket banks are all customers. Um, it's the software is even being used to track COVID nineteen outbreaks. So they've successfully transitioned from a niche product to something that can be applied to many different use cases. Um, in their most recent earnings call, uh, one of their executives said something that I think is kind of interesting. Um, said it took about eight years for Palantir to become the operating system of the special forces. Um, it took about four years to become the operation, operating system of aviation and it took about two months to become the operating system of COVID. Um, more recently it's taking about two days to become the operating system of day zero companies. Um, so what, what they mean by operating is it is like the fundamental platform on which you develop a company so where in the past you would build a company based on processes and people um, we're now building companies based on uh, software relationships and data relationships Uh, you see that very evidently in a company like salesforce whose core product verticals are very aligned with the, the, the physical verticals of an operating business, um, Palantir is essentially doing uh, a similar thing by providing a platform on which to develop um, applications within the enterprise. Um, so before I go into C3, Hunt, do you want to say anything about Palantir? Have any questions?
0: No, no. Uh, I think uh, I've been a skeptic of it. Um, while you're talking, I'm just ordering up the 10 Qs. so I plan to add that to my weekend file. One of the great things about long weekends uh, or three-day weekends is you have a lot more time to, uh, to read and to try to do some numbers. I strongly recommend from personal experience that you mix in uh, a little outdoor activity, sailing sell, or whatever, uh, or going for a run. I find my own personal experience is if you have, you know, a three-day period where you can look at something, try to figure it out, then go and do something else, then come back to it, you'll benefit enormously. I'm sure uh, uh, Mike uh, 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 with uh, uh, Josie uh, uh, has a built-in uh, distractor uh, so that he, uh, he, uh, he gets uh, some time away from whatever the project is to get back to it. Uh, everyone's brains work differently, but you absolutely will pick up things that you wouldn't have seen before if you take a bit of a break and then come back with over to you, Mike.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I got a ton of reading done on our vacation on the boat in Catalina. So it's, uh, it's important. Um, okay, so C3. Um, C3.ai is an enterprise artificial intelligence company. that was founded by a tech industry veteran named Thomas Siebel. Um, Siebel started his career in 1984 as one of the first 20 employees at Oracle. Um, he grew with that company um, until he proposed the idea of creating an enterprise software application specifically for marketing, sales, and customer service. Think CRM. Um, Oracle declined the idea, so he left to start his own company called Siebel Systems in 1993. He grew that company as really the, the leader, the, the first real CRM system. Um, he grew it to over 8,000 employees and revenues north of $2 billion, um, and eventually it was acquired by his old employer, Oracle, in January of 2006. Um, He started C3 in 2009. Um, So, C3 is a little different than its previous uh, business as a CRM, but uh, in a sense, sort of the same. The company provides a software-as-a-service application that enables customers to, similar to Palantir, to develop and deploy and operate large-scale enterprise artificial intelligence application across public and private clouds, all very similar capabilities to Palantir. Um, The way that C3 is broken up is a couple different divisions. The C3 AI suite, which is really an application development environment so that developers can build on top of the tools that C3 has set up. C3 AI applications, that's stuff that they have built specifically for industry verticals and are selling essentially their in-house designed applications. Um the third one is an interesting one and it's an area of technology that's growing very quickly um, and is becoming more interesting, especially within the startup world. Um X Machina is a what's called a no-code solution. Um Essentially, what that means is they 're developing tools that people that don't have software programming experience are able to use to develop products. and in this case, the X Machina tool is designed so that business analysts without software and artificial intelligence programming experience can utilize artificial intelligence models and advanced data analytics uh, without having to go through that training. Um, and finally they have an, an, a CRM product as well, um, that is natively enabled with their artificial intelligence technology. Um, I, I think, um, the, the core of this is that there just aren't that many people in the world that are talented enough utilizing this new technology that, um, uh, that, that, that uh, that the that you could even hire it, even if you wanted to hire and build some of these things. So the way that the, the CEO ex- described it in a recent con- conference is that it D three reduces the amount of code that needs to be developed by a Fortune five hundred enterprise by an order of a thousand. It reduces the cost and the time to develop that product by an order of a hundred. So um, so. Th- Again, this this is similar to Snowflake in that the people that are capable of doing what Snowflake does as a job are so rare that Snowflake as a solution is a no-brainer because not only do you reduce execution risk, um, you just may not even be able to hire the right people that would be able to do it. Um, and you have a company to lean on. So this is a similar situation. Um, C3 sells their product directly to large enterprises. They actually started in the energy sector, which I think is pretty interesting. So uh, Hunt may have some connections or some, 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 some more perspective on what they do here, but they, um, the two, the two parts of energy that they've been very active in is energy management and predictive maintenance. Um, the predictive maintenance piece is, seems to be, um, uh, See, the, the example that, that they gave is Shell, for example, has a bunch of oil rigs offshore and each one of those rigs has thousands of different sensors and devices on them. So their predictive maintenance uh, tool will enable them to predict when and if an, uh, a device needs to be replaced or serviced. and. Uh, their the obvious use case with that is an oil spill that may be caused by a faulty uh, device. They were very successful getting into the energy industry and the utility industry, but that slowed down due to COVID. Um, as a result, the company IPO during COVID with promising growth prospects, but this year they only grew by 17%. And as a, um, Supposedly high growth SaaS company, 17% is pretty dismal, um, as that's less than even Microsoft, who's a behemoth, grew. Um, thinking, so we'll pause here and look at some of the kind of compare Palantir and C3. So Palantir trades at 20, almost 27 times uh, next 12 months' revenue. C3 is cheaper, it trades 16 and a half times. C- c3 is sort of starting on a, on their on their heels in the in the sense that they had a relatively unsuccessful hiring year being the first year that it IPO is sort of a surprise so the question is whether that if one were to invest in c3 you'd want to see them return to a higher growth rate um, I think in the case of both of these companies they sell very large um, you can call them like elephant hunter style sales forces, which I think are less predictable as far as an investor and what we're looking for as an investor. We want something that's going to compound money at a consistently high rate over a long period of time. When you're selling multi million dollar per year deals, those are by their very nature lumpy um, and it's hard to get those deals over. And in the case of C3, you see the consequence of. Um, a pullback in energy. At the, end. the flip side is Palantir also could be subjected to some of those same things, where a good chunk of their revenue comes from the federal government. If federal government decides to stop or reduce spending, Palantir will likely see a hit as well. Um, and and I'll pause there for, for
0: Hunt's perspective and comment. The thing I want to add is. Uh, I'm definitely going to spend time on those two companies over this weekend. But the other thing I think you have to have in, in these companies is the capacity to generate cash so that you're not dependent on running up your debt or or issuing additional equity. And if you look at the huge fortunes that have been built, uh, Microsoft did not need to go public. Uh, Google might not have needed to go public. They got cash flow positive uh, very, very early. And uh, so we want to see that characteristic in these businesses um, because, you know, what is more likely rather than less likely is some kind of significant downdraft, drawdown, whatever you want to call it. And it'll be very hard to raise equity financing in that kind of situation. And with that, we want to wish everyone a good weekend. Stay well. Stay healthy. And uh, we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care.
1: Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder... Nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.